Hello, and welcome back to the Pep Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Mark, and today I'm joined by our friends over at Vox. We have Katie here, and she's going to say a little something. She's the one of the co-presidents, and uh, we're here to talk about their latest issue. I mean, our latest issue. I'm, I'm on the committee as well, kind of foot in both camps, uh, and that is the paradox of peace. We have a few writers in to talk about the issues, and, uh, and Katie, take it away. Hello, yes, my name is Katie Adams. I am the co-president of Vox, along with Kimia, who I'm sure you all in PEP will know. Uh, Vox is a journal that is published once every term, and we have a journal and a blog online. So I'm sure I'll get Mark to put a link to that blog under this podcast. But yeah, this term's issue is the paradox of peace. Um, so yeah, keep an eye out for it in the next few weeks, appearing on newsstands all around campus. Lovely. We also have James and Maeve here, if you'd like to introduce yourself. And uh, we'll start over on, uh, on James with his uh, article, but after you guys introduce yourselves. So let's, uh, let's hear it. Uh, so my name's James. I'm a second year PPE student, unsurprising. I saw the ad for the Paradox of Peace last term, and I thought, I've got some spare time. Let's go for it. He's brought a journal as well. He's, he's prepared. Oh, he's yeah, you should see this guy. He's got his own little diary He's going to talk us through that's, it. That's the problem when you can't remember what you wrote, so... It was very profound and thought-provoking, though, no? Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> or maybe I just can't yeah, remember what I wrote. Yeah, <laughs> either, way, either way works for the situation. But, yeah, that's me. <laughs> and uh, I'm Maeve Schaffer. I study PPE here in second year. And uh, I also am head of marketing for YCC, York Community Consulting. A little shout out there. And, um, yeah, I wrote about how um, Trump's acquittal was pretty much inevitable and now the president of the USA has complete uncapped power, and that's a bit scary. Let's talk about that. Summarize your argument, but don't give away too much. We want people to pick up the issue, got a bright blue cover, and you're not going to be able to miss it when it comes out in, uh, in a week, the end of term. Okay. Well, uh, in summary, uh, basically the... Um, institution of impeachment the sort of um the way it's done makes it um inevitably sort of impossible for a president to actually be impeached and also the fact that there is such um partisan voting you know it's it's not it's no longer about right or wrong it's about red or blue in US politics um that no party will ever ever impeach well in Senate, vote on impeaching their own president. Well, just to be just to be clear here, the House did impeach Donald Trump. It's yeah. just that the Senate didn't, didn't convict and remove him. Yes, yeah, sorry. Yeah, that's exactly what I meant. So, why do you think that it's red and blue rather than sort of Americans coming together when the president has or maybe hasn't done something wrong and going through a real trial of facts and trying to separate fact from fiction and get to the truth rather than the sort of partisan fighting that you seem to be referencing? Well, I mean, no party wants to have a convicted and removed president on their, you know, CV. Um, so they're going to avoid that however possible. But also, I mean, it's clear, it's obvious. I mean, um, the one person that voted to impeach in the Republican side um, in the House has been removed from the party. And uh, there was a Republican senator, Susan Collins. She actually stated that um, she did believe he was guilty, but she thought, well, now he'll learn from his mistakes. <laughs> but it's like, oh, come on. I mean, is he 
no, that's not. he's not going to learn from his mistakes. He's going to learn that no matter what he does, he can get away with it. He's totally immune. He's I think Susan immune. Collins is up in 2020 as well. Senators are voted for six-year terms, so her term mm -hmm. is, is up. So she'll be running for re-election. And she's a moderate Republican, so that was probably an, an interesting and difficult vote for her yeah. to walk the line of, I should probably do the right thing, because I'm sure Susan Collins, from what I've what I've seen from her, knew and knows that uh, it's an issue. That it's a, yeah, it's a huge issue. But she she decided to she decided to acquit him, even though she believed he was guilty, which is interesting. But that's surely even more of a problem because she cares more about her re-election than she does about doing what's what right. What politician for the doesn't? Well, yeah, I get that. It's unfortunate. But I, it is unfortunate. I mean, people shouldn't. This is the problem. This is the. This well, what is was the your problem. conclusion then? Well, my conclusion was basically what I've said, that, um, you know, America's supposed to be this country of liberty and freedom, and yet they've basically got a dictatorship because there's apart from the elections, there is no actual way to hold a president um, accountable for what they're doing during their term, especially if it's corrupt or, you know, treason. I'm going to disagree with you there. I think that that's a bit of, a bit strong language, and I try not to take too many positions on this on this podcast for the for the record, in case people want to look back and and. Uh, but uh, would it really be fair to say that America's a dictatorship no, under I, Trump? No, I, I don't. I think mean that's it. too strong of language yeah. because you said although they do have elections, that's kind of like the number one thing for a dictatorship. No, I, there I are didn't elections. Mean an actual dictatorship, yeah. but I do mean that you know. They have uncapped power. They have the qualities of a dictatorship um, in that Trump can do as he pleases without fear of removal because everyone, well, everyone in his own party blows smoke up his... Uh, we can swear on this podcast. Over the arse then. There it is. <laughs> they do. Lovely. And they Great conclusion. Yeah. And that's that's that. So if you want to read a little bit more about that, Katie will tell you where to find it. Yep, absolutely. So just go online to Vox Census. You can find all of our articles there and most of the journals from previous years. Maves will be near the top as it will be the most recent one. Lovely. And uh, James, you wrote something interesting as well. Would you like to tell us about it? It's a bit like show and tell. What did you write? <laughs> well, I wrote about whether hegemonic stability theory can explain the current trade war between the US and China. And ultimately, my conclusion was, on the surface it can, but when it comes to nitty-gritty details, the theory starts to become more limited. And explain the theory. So the theory in its most fundamental framework is that it claims that, the, that a hegemon, which is a global power that dominates the world military, economically, and uh, structurally, and also has cultural uh, significance in, around the globe. Hardens of power. Exactly. Um, that hegemon brings prosperity and stability. And prosperity uh, means, in this case, being Pareto efficient, which in more detail essentially means all resources are being distributed, regardless of equally or unequally. And the stability in this case means that the current state of affairs are sustainable. 
So that's fundamentally what the definition of hegemonic stability th theory is at its most basic level. When did this theory first come about? Because we were talking before, and you said it's a, quite an old theory that you're applying to a, a new sort of concept, the 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 trade war and the, I mean, that battle for hegemony between the U.S. and China. Yeah, exactly. So the concept first came around with theorists like Charles Kindleberger in the 1970s when he argued that the U.S. was actually declining at the time, but it got a resurgence in the 1990s when the U.S. had what it's called this unipolar moment when the Soviet Union collapsed uh, with the Berlin Wall fall in 1989 and then the Soviet Union ultimately collapsing in 1991. And it was clear that the U.S. had won the cultural war between capitalism and democracy against um, a more dictatorship-structured uh, political system and a communist economy. And then that's when academics started looking at the U.S. going, uh, this is how the U.S. can dominate the global structure through, and this theory explains it, saying how the U.S. is bringing prosperity and it's bringing stability. And that's when it was re-examined re again. But since there's been more challenges in recent years, especially with the 2008 financial crash where capitalism or at least U.S. capitalism has been questioned a little bit more and China's been on the rise and other, other things that's been happening in recent years like Trump and protectionism and then the U.S. having debates of how involved it should be in military affairs elsewhere starts to bring into question how hegemonic the U.S. is acting. Yeah, yeah. Fair. You said that the nitty-gritty is where this hegemony stability theory fails. How is that so? Well, to first answer that, you have to look at the, bas the basics of how, um, of how the theory does seem credible. So at first it seems credible because uh, if the theory says that there's prosperity, then, th then that means in practice the U.S. is bringing prosperity and the trade war is bringing prosperity. Well, obviously it's not bringing prosperity and it's not bringing stability either. So, so at a first glance it appears as though the theory can explain. However, the theory doesn't fully... It explains the end product. It doesn't explain the process behind how the hegemon becomes the hegemon in the first place. It couldn't explain how China's had a more aggressive stance, arguably in some cases. For example, there is a Chinese dream uh, and there is the Belt and Road Initiative. China's trying to show its economic dominance through those means and then uh, its actions in the South China Sea. It's showing those, those ambitions but the hegemonic stability, but hegemonic stability theory doesn't doesn't assume that there is aggression from smaller states. In fact, there's. A, well, I mean, smaller. China's well, got well, the, so the in, in comparison the plurality to the of the world's population. Yeah, exactly. So, well, in comparison to the hegemon, but um, the there's a there's a small section of the theory which the essay explains a little bit about hegemonic overreaching. So it says that the hegemon will expand its resources too much, get too involved in other people's affairs, and then essentially collapse. Um, but that, that section of the theory doesn't explain the aggression from China, and the trade war is part of that. China is not... It's although, well, actually, currently it appears to be backing down slightly. It shows more lenience than, than Trump does. But um, I think that's more than an explanation. I think Trump 
Trump's aggression is more an explanation as, that, as opposed to the structure of the global order. Very interesting. And if you want to read more about that or you want to read James's article, you can find that in... Vox Census. Absolutely. <laughs> Watch out for it. Got a bright blue cover. It'll be all over campus. And uh, moving on from there, I wrote a piece as well. And I mean, we can talk about that if you like. Or Kate, did you end up writing a piece, Katie? Uh, not for this issue, but I've written past issues, yeah. Okay, that means that we can talk about my piece. Lovely. Go for it. So I wrote about American foreign policy under Trump. Another uh, sort of Trump topic, but this was interesting because there, there doesn't seem to be a unified foreign policy mission under the Trump administration. You have different figures come inside, come in the administration from, I mean, John Bolton, the... Uh, I'm not going to say war criminal, but I'm also not going to not say war criminal, uh, <laughs> who, <laughs> who was in uh, probably for, for 12 months, and that became a much more Middle East-centered uh, sort of focus in, in uh, American foreign policy. But it's really been, uh, some of the biggest things have been the move from, of uh, the, the uh, Israeli embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And I'd be interested to hear your guys' takes on that. Because as an American, that is the one, one of the few foreign policy sort of moves that Trump has made that I was actually in favor of. Just because, I mean, every U.S. president uh, in the modern era, so I think it was since Clinton, had, has promised to do that on the campaign trail, including Obama. But Trump's the one who did it. So, I mean, that kind of gets me, gives, I'll give him plaudits for that, for following through. But what do you guys think? I mean, good for him. I, I I didn't know about that. I have not actually read about that. I think that's yeah. I definitely would give him credit for that. Well, the the opposing viewpoint there is that it's a snub to the Palestinians and to any effort towards peace or or a two state solution or any state solution or any solution to that crisis. That's what many critics have pointed out. Oh, oh my God. Okay, I completely misunderstood what you're saying. Then yeah. Okay, disagree then. I do think that he needs to, um, what Israel is doing is awful. I'm actually part Jewish. I say this, and because it's worrying to say this now, because you know, you've got Jeremy Corbyn being called an anti-Semite for saying something like this. But I do think um, putting the um, embassy in Jerusalem and basically, you know, giving Israel the sort of go ahead with what they're doing almost, is. is it a go-ahead? I feel, I think that Benjamin Netanyahu and Trump have an interesting relationship where they, they're similar characters in the way that they conduct politics. They're sort of buddies, and this might be, I, I don't even know if it was like a unified foreign policy move by the U.S. government or just Trump liking Netanyahu and saying, okay, we'll move the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem for you. But Katie, I'd be interested to hear what you say. I think it's quite symbolic. Um, I think... By moving the embassy there, Trump is saying that the world is going to listen to and have diplomatic uh, connections with Israel far more than it is with Palestine. And to that extent, it almost kind of seems to imply that he's regarding Israel as the more legitimate actor, which I think does nothing to help the situation over there. Well, to my understanding, I thought... I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not that educated on the issue, but I thought it was clear that Israel was the ally of America and America was not um, 
I thought that was right. Israel's just... definitely the ally of America. Exactly. We, we, well, exactly. Oh, 100% so, it's the ally. So yeah. America yeah. gave them the Iron Dome. So, so in, in theory, all that does, again, I don't fully understand the significance of it as I'm not educated enough, but it appears as though it's more of a confirmation of something that's already the case. I think that's definitely true, but whereas before perhaps it wasn't so physically embodied, now mm-hmm. this is a big symbol to everyone that that is where their allegiances lie and will lie for the considerable future. This is not just a short-term thing. This is this is saying something to the outside world about perhaps even what he wants his foreign policy to be. This is, this is a big statement. But it, again, it's not unsurprising considering his... Um, animosity towards no. Islam in general. I mean, well, you have that at the beginning of the presidency, the seven-country Muslim ban on... It seemed almost arbitrary and like a, a throw to the base of just, we're going to slap this on, it's xenophobic in its in its construction and, and see what happens. It, it d- didn't seem... There was no unified foreign policy message from the Trump administration from the beginning, which is sort of the key to a, a good foreign policy, having a unified sort of State Department, Pentagon, and these entities, these institutions in the U.S. don't seem to be working together. Mm-hmm. But sort of my, my main point in this article centered around the failure, the absolute failure of pulling out of Syria and leaving our Kurdish allies uh, back in October to to basically fight Turkey and uh, Erdogan trying to increase his presence in Syria in that region and essentially handing power to a a more legitimate dictatorship um, in President Erdogan. Uh, legitimate in that it's a real dictatorship, not calling back to, <laughs> to earlier when we were talking about the U.S. possibly being a dictatorship, but to, to leave our allies that we'd been fighting with and, and training to, to sort of be defenseless has left them, I mean, open to essentially slaughter. And there have been just untold consequences and, and deaths because of that move. And we don't really talk about it enough, especially because this was before Trump was impeached and before the election of 20, before everybody's now talking about the, the 2020 election, before there were any Democratic primaries. So it's kind of flown under the radar, but it was a very sort of pertinent issue at the time. And I think it's Trump's uh, just biggest disaster on foreign policy because it's just leaving an ally on the field just to say we brought the troops home. And I mean, I'd be interested to, to hear what you guys have to say to that because this is this is a very U.S. based, and I don't like to be too U.S. based. So we can move on to some uh, some British politics, a little political discussion before we sign off here. But I'd be interested to hear what you guys think. Well, I remember at the very beginning of the year there was the um, missile on was it a hospital potentially that killed a very important general, and then hashtag World War Three was trending on Twitter. And I mean, does everyone else remember, I remember that? that. Yeah. I remember that, yeah. yeah. And uh, I remember look, seeing that and sort of looking into the, well, reading the whole history behind what was going on there. I just think Trump is very much a all talk and then doesn't really think about the consequences of anything. He wouldn't have thought about the consequences in Syria. He didn't think about the consequences with this well, the, missile. The thing is that he's briefed on the consequences. Do you think he listens? I mean, if you read, what was it, Michael Wolf's book, Fire and Fury, mm-hmm. when that came out, the, 
according to, the, to him, the president spends most of his time watching cable news and eating McDonald's. Yeah. But I'm not sure. I don't think that's. Quite I'm not sure too... if that's if that is completely true. But maybe it's a little bit true. The guy does tend to like McDonald's. Uh, but I would hope that like the there is an institution. There are a number of institutions and a number of people around Trump that are sort of the adults in the room. Like a Jim Matthews before he left the administration, respected general, foreign policy sort of a, a very unifying figure as well. This was something that someone Democrats could get behind, Republicans could get behind. He was supposed to be the adult in the room on foreign policy. And there were so many there are supposed to be so many sort of the adults in the room in the Trump administration to to guide Trump to the middle or guide Trump to the, the sane solution or to to just have input that isn't or that is sort of just uh, more centrist and just kind of standard American foreign policy. But that just really hasn't happened, has it? I think the key thing you just said there is that he, before he left, you know, that was before Trump kicked him out. Trump did not like what he was saying. He didn't like that he probably disagreed with what Trump was. Yeah, I think Matthews resigned, actually. No, oh. Mattis, not Matthews, Jim Mattis. Oh, okay. Right. Mad yeah, Dog Mattis, people yeah. call him. Well, there you go then. Okay, e so if you want to if you want to read more about that and read my read my conclusion, uh, I give I give Trump I think a grade on his uh, on his <laughs> foreign policy, and uh, just it's not great. But uh, you could probably hear that from this conversation. But we can move on to a little bit of, a little bit of just current affairs talk. We can I mean I'll leave it up to you guys. What do you what do you guys want to What do you guys want to chat about a little bit before we get off? Get, well, uh, Italy's stop recording just been here. entirely shut down, hasn't it? Yeah, mm -hmm. it has been. That coronavirus. People are worried about the ski trip being cancelled. The ski trip? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the Yusnow ski trip. I'd, I, would, I, think, I think it, well, it's through Yusu. Yeah, the yearly. I don't know where that is to. Though. Yearly ski trip. It's uh, France, somewhere in France. They take a coach ah. down there. Yeah, had a friend going. And she said she got an email that it could be cancelled at any minute. Mm. Oh, my gosh. So they could be, she was saying at dinner... They could be getting on the bus, and they could, someone from Yusu could walk down. It's canceled, mm -hmm. and just everybody go home. <laughs> yeah. And then nobody would have booked train tickets, plane tickets to get home. So you'll have people just stranded in York. Well, I mean, my housemate does human geography, and they have a sort of required trip to go do field work in Tenerife. And obviously there was a couple... They're that... required to go to Tenerife. Yeah, I know. Lucky them. <laughs> um, but basically that's still kind of up in the air, whether that's going to go ahead. There was a case of two tourists having coronavirus and they, they didn't quarantine themselves. They carried on with their holiday and went around all the main touristy areas. Well, so... there, are, there are all those jokes. Uh, I think I saw it on, on uh, Facebook and, and Instagram of uh, like regular people when they're sick wanting to like sleep and stay inside. <laughs> and then when people get coronavirus, they want, want to, to travel skiing. the world. Yeah, which is <laughs> I think it's just because of the incubation period, which is scary and why Italy is so scared. And then also I also saw that uh, the, it was just a mash of headlines. And then, um, and then a comment. It was like all these headlines of European countries taking the coronavirus very seriously. And then the U.S. deciding whether or not to cancel Coachella. Yeah, it's, but I do think the media is really causing so much. Mm. Like, would you uh, say that they're complicit? Panic. That's a word oh, I yeah. like to use. They're I think they're complicit. That poor man who just went called the super spreader who just went from a business trip went on a nice family holiday didn't realize he was ill went to a pub and now he's been labeled a super spreader because he unknowingly spread the coronavirus they, they literally name and shamed him put his picture out there as if he did this on purpose and i think that poor man is going to have that following for the rest of his life the media is just 
particular, I mean, I dislike the British media anyway, but they are really making it. I mean, people are panic buying toilet rolls. Yeah, that's so it's funny. It's just... Well, a friend of mine has said that the, the BBC is the best news broadcasting system, a British friend of mine, in, in the world. And I'm, he's going to remain nameless. But uh, what do you guys think about that? Because I, I, I don't know if I disagree. I don't know if I know enough about the BBC to say yes or no. But I just know that American media is so sensationalized for clicks. Yeah. And it's just kind of depressing to look at because people will read headlines and just headlines. And the articles behind the headlines are so different from the, the headline is just meant to, to grab you. And it might not even be completely related to the conclusion of the article and just the sensationalism is 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 completely crazy so what what would you guys think about with that in mind the bbc as a as a as a news system as an institution i think it's as impartial as any news uh news program can be to be honest i mean there's 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 a lot of debate about that but in my opinion that's what it is but I would definitely say, especially, they are definitely hyping it up. I mean, over the last few days, I've been receiving notifications genuinely every hour about yeah. how many people have died, how many people have contracted it. There's been, I think, consistent like programming about how to avoid getting it, how many times to wash your hands, how long for. It just, I mean, that's important. Uh, you know, it should be coming from Public Health England, and it is, which is good. But I definitely think how many experts and stuff they're getting on the TV, it just makes it feel like it must be a slow news day that that is what is continually coming up. Yeah, absolutely. I'd personally say that in what the BBC's really good at is reality check. What it's really good at is trying to curb itself almost and saying, these are the facts, this is the case. You know, and it, it uh, gets your curiosity going because it... Uh, it asks questions about the topic at hand and then it tries to answer them as, as best it can within an article space of time. But in terms of the coronavirus, I wouldn't be so sure as if it would be a terrible thing that it is on the news all the time because, granted, it is making people scared, arguably, strongly, arguably, unnecessarily so. But that also means that it's in the forefront of everyone, everyone's minds and that the constant programming might actually be beneficial for... Well, on a on a macro level, because people might take their health a bit more seriously in hygiene speaking wise, so it could be beneficial, arguably. Um, well, the amount of things that could up. happen. This could turn into a global pandemic. It could fizzle out over the next few weeks. We just don't know. And there's so many project projections that are that are put out in articles for just the spread, where we really don't know what is going to happen and I, I feel like every article should kind of end on that and then just direct you to the national health service like wh whichever place is the place full of experts that should be where you're directed <laughs> the, place at the, the place full of experts was where you should mm -hmm. be directed at the end of each of these sort of more sensationalized articles even if it's going to be for clicks to get people on your site to get people watching you don't want to purposely leave them misinformed at the end even if even if you're gonna lie to them a little bit it would be just good to have mm -hmm. at the a little bit of a here this is genuine information now that you've read this crap but yeah. i think in the newspapers as well i mean you know if you have a story that's not sensationalist enough it doesn't sell 
you know, especially in the print media, I've been noticing a lot of the headlines and things. And I think a lot of the people that do buy newspapers now are the elderly. And yeah. in fairness, they are the ones that are going to be hit the worst. We've <laughs> yeah. seen in other countries, yeah, you keep hearing that it's not going to affect I shouldn't, the, I shouldn't laugh. the majority <laughs> of the population. I don't know why I just laugh. That's horrible. You know, you know, while it won't affect the majority of the population, the people it will affect are the people with underlying health conditions and the elderly. And we are an aging population. In fact, I think most of the countries in Europe, like Germany, France, they're aging as well. And definitely Italy. So in some ways maybe actually going back on what we've said the 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 media is just kind of informing the people that need to know most well like we have horrible cable news sensationalized cable news you have sensationalized newspapers mm. so our newspapers are more the sort of outside of maybe C- cnn is that's kind of like the sort of standard of american news but that's it's very sort of sensationalized already mm. America is very sort of reliant on the the big newspapers like the New York Times, the just just the biggest newspapers like Wall Street Journal, uh, for the highest standard of news. Like that's where Americans would look, where you guys would look at the BBC. So that's that's an interesting kind of comparison. Ours our print media is a little bit more. I mean, as you get beyond some of those those bigger ones, the the print media sort of becomes a lot like here but some of the headlines like daily mail and like the sun mm. they're like just they make me just cringe the a little sun. bit what are don't, <laughs> don't buy the sun please <laughs> don't no, buy just, it that's not official pep talk uh, <laughs> policy there buy, no. buy the sun if you like no but just don't buy the sun from Maeve from Maeve okay <laughs> representing Maeve's views yes yeah. please don't <laughs> All right, love. Do we want to bring it to a close here? I think that uh, I think this has been a great, great political discussion. Yep. And uh, one last pitch for uh, for Vox. Yep, absolutely. So just keep an eye out on campus in the next few weeks, and especially when you come back after your lovely holidays, which I'm sure we spent working very hard and sleeping. I cannot wait. Uh, please keep an eye out for Vox and visit the Vox website. Just type in Vox at York. And yeah, all these lovely articles will be available uh, and ready on the main page. Um, and yeah, thank you very much for having us. Well, and what if people want to write and get involved? If people want to write and get involved, they need to email uh, email us at the email address on the Vox page. Um, we will aim to get back to you within one to two working days. Lovely. Okay, great. Thank you, Katie, Maeve, James. Thank you for, for having coming. us. It's been lovely. I've been your host, Mark. This has been the Pep Talk Podcast, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.